God, thank you that you are our creator, that you love us and care for us. Lord, we're approaching um, part of the Bible today that has so much depth to it, so much truth in it, so much to show us about our lives. Um, we pray that you give us wisdom to, to see it, that you give us ears and hearts to hear it and to know it and to trust in you, and that you grow us as the people of our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a world where we have an innate sense of the fact that something is wrong. Um, now, this is, that's demonstrable. That's, that's is, even obvious, you might say. Um, have you ever heard someone ask the question, what's wrong with the world? You know, I think, I think everyone's run into that at some point, and we've probably mostly asked it at some point. Um, different people have different answers, of course, to the, uh, that question. Uh, selfishness, global warming, uh, diseases, governments, parents, kids... Uh, happy Father's Day. But one thing that at least in my experience, people never respond to that question with, to the question, what's wrong with the world, is nothing. I've never had that one come back. Has anyone ever, has anyone ever had anyone answer the question, what's wrong with the world, with no, nothing's wrong with the world? I, it, it hasn't cropped up for me. Uh, and I think that's universal. Uh, however we interpret the fact it is universal that we believe that something is wrong with the world that we live in. We, we know it from experience, uh, from the experience of disease, from the experience of loss that seems too soon and too fast, or, or circumstances that just seem unfair, where um, you know, some people get so little, as we've talked about today, and some people get so much. Some people are exposed to this reality on an almost constant basis. When, when we lived in Alice Springs, you know, there was an organisation not that far from where we lived called the Alice Springs Women's Shelter and, and that's a place that hired a whole bunch of people and all their job was to look after women who were in abusive relationships and had to run away from that. That was their job day in, day out, 24-7 shelter for those people. This is a, a broken world. Imagine if you worked that job. You would, you would have a very clear idea of the brokenness of this world. Uh, many of us, we live a bit sheltered from it, but even for us, we have this innate sense that something is broken in this world. And it's, it's only natural that we'd want to know why the world is broken, isn't it? And today, we're, we're in the, the second week of our series uh, going through the big moments of Scripture. It's called The Peaks, because uh, we're going through the mountaintop moments. But really, this one is more of a valley, in a way, than a peak. What happens in Genesis 3 sets the world into the state of brokenness, evil, and sin that it remains in until today, uh, until the end, to some extent. And it also gives us the unfortunate answer to that question of why. Why is the world broken? Why is my laptop broken? Could be another question. And the text killing us today, isn't it, Jasmine? Don't know what's going on. And the answer is us. We are the reason why the world is broken. Now, I'm not being I'm not being rude to just us in this room here, and everyone else is good. Like humanity. Last week we looked at Genesis chapter one to two, chapters one to two, and and we saw that God created a good creation, a good world, and that he created humanity 
with good identity, uh, children of God, uh, with good purpose to multiply and fill the earth with the image of God, uh, and to rule the creation and, and, and reveal God's goodness to the creation as his image bearers. So we, we have this perfect relationship with God in the beginning, and because we had perfect relationship with God, we had perfect relationship with each other. Uh, marriage is, is kind of the, the core example that we get in the creation account. Uh, marriage was perfect and, and every other human relationship was perfect and joyful because our relationship with our creator was good and perfect and joyful and the whole world was very good. And our relationship with, with even the whole creation was good. Everything was good. But now we come to Genesis 3 and we call this the fall for a reason. The glorious heights of the creation fall in flaming ruins. The very good is invaded by the very evil. And you could call this the great unravelling, was the word that comes to my mind when I read this. And yet as terrible as this moment in the Bible is, it's well worth our while to, to sit here and to look at this. Um, it's once again one of those passages that we could do a whole series just on, on this. Wouldn't be the most fun series in the world. But. First, this is worthwhile because we see so much of the reality of our own lives explained to us in what happens here. And second, because here in the midst of the fall of the, that great unravelling, we see something about God that gives us great cause for hope. But we'll get to that. First, let, let's walk through this passage and see how it speaks to, to us, to our situations. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible already, uh, flick open to, to Genesis chapter 3. You know, it'll be on roughly page 2, regardless of the translation. Uh, and if you do not have a Bible with you and you would like to do that, there's a stack of them up on that shelf back there. If you don't own a Bible, take it, it's yours. And having said that, I'm not going to read it just yet. Um, what we're going to see here is, is three things. We're going to see the road to sin. Um, we're going to see the bitter rewards of sin. And we're going to see a world in sin. So first, we, we get this temptation of Adam and Eve. Uh, and this is, this is in verses kind of 3 to 7 of this passage. Uh, and what we see, see here, this is the road. This is the, the pathway to sin. And it's not just the road to Adam and Eve's sin that we see here. Uh, in fact, throughout this chapter, we see the first instance of something that plays out in every life, anywhere, basically for all of history in exactly the same way, or in many of the same ways. The circumstances are different. Our temptations don't usually involve a physical snake, for instance. We're not usually in a garden, although maybe sometimes, you know, depending on the, the temptation. Uh, but the hallmarks, the characteristics of temptation stay true. They stay the same. So this first section, the road to sin, gives us enormous insight into the nature of temptation as we watch the first temptation unfolding. And this is relevant to us because Satan's strategies haven't changed an awful lot throughout the years. And so this instructs us as people who want to resist him. This instructs us in how he works. And to understand what happens here, we have to explain... Uh, the tree first. 
So in Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam. This is summary version, right? God created Adam and he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden and told him to care for the garden and told him that he could eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, you know, the tree that would give you forever life. So he's abundantly provided for in the most perfect garden ever. But then God gave him one command to live by. Not, not a big command, not a taxing command. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gives a really good reason not to as well. Because if you eat from it, in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. And it's odd, isn't it? Um, God gives them a command to live by. And the command is not to... Uh, the command is, is, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why is that odd? That's odd because in giving them the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God is giving them the knowledge of good and evil, do you see? Like, he's explaining this is good and this is not good. This is evil. He's showing them the good way to live and the evil way that they are to avoid. And that gives us insight into what's really going on with this tree. Because the real, uh, this, this real physical tree, actual tree, represents a real choice. It's a choice between God's definition of good and evil and any other definition of good and evil. So to eat the fruit, to gain the knowledge of good and evil, didn't mean that they would become suddenly these deeply wise you know, magistrates uh, deeply wise in discerning good and evil by God's standards, but that they would become self-legislators is the best term I could come up with for this. I'm stealing it from someone else, I should say. They would choose their own definition of good and evil over and above God's definition of good and evil. So, so now let's, let's look at it. So first, the serpent, who is Satan, comes to Eve... And he twists God's words. He says this. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And do you see what's happening now? Satan's making God out to be the, the overbearing, domineering dictator of creation. Twisting his words. Uh, Eve responds to Satan and, and tries to turn him away. Tells him that God has said not to eat just from that one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan tries his next move. He's twisted the words of God. Now he outrightly denies the truth of God's words. You'll not surely die, he says. And immediately he, he puts on move number three. Not just denying the truth of God's word, but denying the goodness of God's word. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Doesn't that sound nice, Eve? And there's this brief moment of, of tension here. Eve looks at the fruit and the Bible tells us that she saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make you wise. And here's the tension of that moment. Eve has a choice. Will she be a self-legislator? Do you see, it's even happening in that moment. She looks at it, and for the first time in the whole narrative of creation, someone who isn't God looks at something and says, that's good. You know, chapter 1, 
And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And here we have Eve seeing that the fruit was good to make you wise. And she's going to pick, is this, is, I'm going to follow what, the, what God says about this or what I think about this. Will she trust that God's word is true and that it is good? And you see, these three moves of twisting the word, denying the truth of God's words and, and denying the goodness of God's words are basically what lies at the root of temptations for us today. Satan, the human heart with him, still sing this song. He seeks to make us believe that God is overbearing, that he is domineering. He twists God's words like that. And he twists them in other ways as well. So often you see people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who will seek to justify their clearly sinful actions from the Bible. They try and twist a place in the Bible to say, no, but it kind of says this over here, so, so that makes it okay, even though there's something much more clear over here. Sure, God's, God's word speaks against adultery, but I really love this other woman. And God's word says that we're to love. Yeah, maybe that one's a bit too obvious, right? But still, it happens. You know, I believe his command exceed his command to love exceeds his command to be faithful to my wife. Staying will mean that I'm cut off from love. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Hasn't he said that he will give us the desires of our hearts in his word? And not only that, Satan tries to convince us that God's words aren't true. You know, if you found that to be a flimsy argument and yet you really wanted it, the next step is, sure, the Bible speaks against this sin, but that's just the culture of the day that it's speaking into. It's not, it's not where we are now. That's not relevant to us anymore. That's not, no longer true for us. It's not something I need to listen to. Finally, he tries to convince us that God's words aren't good. This is probably the big move, right? The, the, the significant one. Oh, sure, I know that the Bible says don't do that. I know it says don't lie, but telling the truth, telling the truth would produce so many difficulties for me in my life. Telling the truth would have so many negative consequences. It's going to fracture relationships. Uh, isn't it good just to lie to keep the peace? Wouldn't that be better than following God's way here? It's amazing how easy it is as a Christian to hear someone say, the Bible says this. to see something demonstrated clearly in the word and to rationalise not doing it. <laughs> because you know, I don't feel that that's really the direction that God's leading me in personally. You know, if, if you don't know a word of the Bible, I think this is still true. Because some of God's moral commands are written into us on our hearts and given to us as a conscience even if that is fractured, even if that is broken, it's still there. And when you do something that's wrong, you know it's wrong. And you have to justify that actually this thing is good. And that's the road to sin. And so Eve, Eve eats the fruit, tragically. And before we move on to our second part, the bitter reward of sin. I just want to comment on a significant moment that happens right here. Verse 6 says, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, 
and he ate. That is so significant. Because something really terrible has just happened that we could just gloss over. Remember, remember back in Genesis 2, God created Eve as a helper for Adam. And, and that doesn't mean that Eve is in some way less than Adam, that, that she is inferior to Adam. Those are the, it's the same descriptor, the, the, the helper that is used of the Holy Spirit when speaking about Christians, not that the relationship is the same, but it is obviously not a speaking down term. But what we do see is something that the Apostle Paul explained to us in Ephesians chapter 5. He reflects on Genesis 2 and, and what it says about the marriage relationship. And he says that husbands are to lovingly lead their wives. He says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he says, husbands, love your wives, wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And there we see the nature of what it is to be a husband, right? The nature of marriage in many ways, uh, as it was created, because Paul roots it in this creational thing in Genesis chapter 2. The husband is to lead his wife in servant leadership that ultimately reflects the great marriage of Jesus to his church in the end. You know, Matthew Henry, if you know Matthew Henry, he's, a, he's an old commentator, 1800s, I think. Um, he had that beautiful quote uh, that, about this. He, he sums it up really well. He says, the woman was made out of the rib of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And yet here we find out that Adam, the first husband, has been sitting in the background, failing. Failing to lead his wife as she is tempted away from the word of God. You know, failing... As, as, as one of the co-image bearers of God to step in and speak up for God in this situation where his wife is being led away from him. And when everything falls apart to make matters a little bit worse, he's going to blame her for it in a large way. Men, there's a lesson for us here, especially for those married. God has called you toward self-sacrificing, loving, protecting leadership. Often all we see are Adams. Men who throw every decision onto their wives rather than stepping up to their calling of leading out of love for her. Or worse still, men who lead in domineering self-interest. And so often men who... Men who, when it falls apart, you know... When, when their wives have had to work so hard and had to make every decision uh, in the absence of his leadership, and, and then when something falls apart, men who are ready to jump in and blame her when it goes wrong. That's a terrible choice. Why did you say that? The biblical shape for marriage and for husbanding is very clear, and it's a high, high calling. We need, we need to be stepping up to it with our eyes on the good husband, on Jesus. That's my little, little aside on being a, a husband, maybe on a father as well. Happy Father's Day again. Um, but then we, we get this, the bitter rewards of sin here. And again, this is deeply relatable because the sin offered everything and actually took everything. 
Sin always promises to give and sin always takes. The bitter reward of sin is suffering and death. When, when sin enters the picture, you see this uh, systematic breaking down of everything that was central to the goodness of creation up to this point. In fact, do you remember that order that we talked about before, that in creation we had a perfect relationship with God as his children, and because of that we had perfect relationships with each other and with the creation. We were the servant kings of creation, sitting under our great king, Father God. Well, now we see that sin destroys the relationship with God, and that as a result, every good benefit of our relationship with God also begins to collapse in on itself here. So first, the, you know, the fundamental, fundamental relationship of humanity with God is broken. Up to this point, humanity has walked with God in the garden. We don't know how long that's been the thing for, but we know that we had peace with him. We lived with him in his sanctuary garden. We've related to him without fear as our good creator and king. And yet immediately, Adam and Eve are consumed with guilt and shame. The start... They start to sew clothes for themselves, to hide themselves in shame. The choice to be self-legislators has instantly led to the guilty feeling that they should be ashamed of themselves. And that guilt and shame have two outworkings in how Adam and Eve relate to God and to each other. When God comes and calls to them, asks them what happened, what do they do? They hide and they blame. They hear God coming, so they hide in the bushes, like you can hide from God, right? That's, that's a reasonable thing to do, all-knowing and whatnot. But God very graciously calls to them. You notice he doesn't walk in and go, that bush, that one, come on. <laughs> he comes and he calls out, where are you? And he asks, you know, when they say that they are hiding because they're ashamed, because they're naked, he asks, did you eat the fruit? And what do they do? they immediately start laying blame. In fact, it's worth noting, Adam, like we said, he sort of blames Eve, but he mostly blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. See the brokenness of that statement? Adam, God's creational identity is to live as sons in a sonship relationship with him and as servant kings relationship with creation and to lead his wife as equals and together they are to reveal what God is like by how they are and so you, you know you had God humanity creation if you had your order there and when Adam sins immediately he blames God's work in creating he blames his wife who is just, <laughs> who he has just let down, as we've seen. When God asks Eve what happens, she blames the serpent. And remember, she too is called to this role of relating to God in a relationship of sonship. That's not gendered sonship. That is, that is the rela special relationship of a, of a son to the father. And to, and to relate to the creation in servant kingship. And so she's blaming the creation which God has called her to rule over. And it's worth saying what happens here is reflected in our hearts every time we sin, isn't it? Isn't it our tendency to hide and to blame? 
when we know we've done wrong. When we know we're guilty, when we feel that shame, we so regularly tend to seek to cover up that shame. Our solution is don't talk about it, pretend it's not there. Answer indirectly. Conceal. If it does come into the light, point out why someone else was wrong in this situation. Divert the attention. You see this so often in, in, in young children when they you know, try to literally bury their heads in a pillow or something when, when you confront them with something that they've done wrong. But much more sadly, you see this often in older people, in older Christians. Not older, older than children, you understand. Adults. You know, I see this in my own tendencies quite often. In my own heart, I feel this pull. In those moments, we need to remember that it is part of what Jesus came to change in us that we no longer hide and we no longer blame. He came to save us from our guilt and our shame. And so we don't need to hide and blame anymore. It's absolutely a serious implication of the gospel that we must seek to be open about our sin. And when tempted to hide our sin, when tempted to blame for our sin, to remember that Jesus has dealt with my sin. So I don't, I don't need to hide. I can be open and carry any worldly consequences as a forgiven child of God. You know, the final part of this passage we see is God cursing the creation. Because of sin, Adam and Eve will live in a cursed world where pain, sorrow and death are normal realities. The relationship, uh, relationships of humanity will always be broken from this moment onwards. God tells Eve that her desire will be contrary to her husband, but he will rule over her. What that means is that this relationship, which was meant to be characterised by, by loving servant leadership and joyful blessed submission, is going to become essentially a power struggle. If you're married, you might relate. He'll tend to dominate her. She'll tend to kick against him. The relationship with the creation will be reversed as well. Meant to be servant kings of creation which submits to our leading, instead, the creation is going to fight against us. And this world will be characterised by pain and struggle and eventually death. But actually, it's interesting, at the moment of judgement here is also the moment where we find the first glimmer of hope in the story. And this is, this is actually one, one of two patterns that I want to point you towards here, that that happen in this part of the story and that we're going to see continuing and rolling again and again through as we go through these mountaintop moments in the Bible. This first pattern that we see again and again is that we see moments of judgment mixed with mercy and grace. In fact, moments of judgment mixed with mercy and promise even is what we see here. Even as God justly condemns humanity and the world with us, he graciously doesn't reach to the full extent of the judgment that had been uh, called for. Remember, back in, in Genesis chapter 2, he said, um, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they don't. 
He doesn't just wipe them out. He doesn't just wipe us out as we could deserve. They begin to die. There is a spiritual death in separation to God, but there is grace in their ongoing life as well. In fact, we actually see a tenderness. We see a care to God's attention, even to fallen humanity, that reveals that his intentions are still to bless. His intentions are still good. He still means good for us. Because even as he sends Adam and Eve away because of their sin, he dresses them in skins. He provides for them in their new fallen state. Even more than that, though, we see in the midst of judgment, of this judgment, God preparing and promising deliverance. He first turns to the snake here, and he, he, as he condemns the snake, he makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He says, I'll put enmity. This is verse 15 of chapter 3. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, he promises there will come a descendant who will crush the head of the snake at great cost to himself. He promises the defeat of their enemy. Notice it says, it says there will be enmity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent, but then he says he will crush your head, the serpent's head. It's not just the offspring of the serpent. And the serpent, we understand, and the Bible tells us, is, is Satan here. Our great enemy is going to be defeated. Jesus was going to come. Jesus, who would be a better Adam. Jesus, who would be the true son and who would follow his father and reveal his father perfectly. You know, John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has made him known. So Jesus comes and he is the image of the invisible God. He is the better Adam. Jesus is a servant king who would lead so faithfully as to die for the redemption of his people and of creation. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better husband. You know, that Matthew Henry quote that I mentioned earlier is actually a little bit famous. Like, some of you will have heard it before. I've heard it mentioned before, but it's actually followed by what, if, if you ask me, is a better Matthew Henry quote. He writes this, he says, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross in order to which his side was opened and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. Jesus, the sinless saviour, would come and would defeat Satan, sin and death by his cross. But there's a really long road between this point and that point. Next week we're going to be looking at Abraham, uh, but let me just briefly finish by mentioning the world in sin 
that we see expanding between the end of Genesis 3 and the beginning of Genesis 12, between the fall and Abraham. And what we see flowing out of the fall is a world consumed with brokenness, with evil and with sin. You know, you might be tempted to read Genesis 3 sometimes and just go, well, it wasn't that bad, was it? They just ate some fruit, didn't they? But the reality is that things escalate really quickly, alarmingly quickly, and the inability of humanity to save itself becomes rapidly apparent. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, right? What happens in the next generation? Their first two sons, son number one murders son number two out of jealousy. And things just worsen and worsen and worsen until we get up to Genesis 6 and things kind of hit rock bottom. We read that every intention of the thoughts of humanity's heart was only evil continually. I do not know how much more black and white you could put how terrible it was. You know, to our sheltered modern ears, we might hear that and kind of think that it was a really indulgent culture, you know, kind of one big party. But I don't think that's the extent of what we see here. Think more something along the lines of the atrocities of the Japanese army in World War II, who, who, who raped and murdered and burned and stole, who famously did unspeakably awful things to their enemies, even after they had surrendered, so awful that we can't even mention them here. Think of that crossed with a culture of human trafficking, crossed with the most abusive relationship you can imagine, played out in every relationship in the whole world that exists. And that's probably a bit of a hint of what we're looking at by the time you get to Genesis 6. Evil beyond imagination. And God calls Noah, and in Noah we start to see this second pattern that's going to play out. And it's going to be the pattern that we've seen laid of creation, of new creation and of fall. The creation fall story is going to roll through again and again and again in a way that sometimes seems futile but ultimately is actually filled with hopeful expectation of a day when it's going to be a creation story that's not followed by a fall story. You know, we see that Noah is pictured as this new Adam. Genesis 9 even starts with the words, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you're like, huh, those are the words of Genesis 1. And then Noah, he goes and plants a vineyard. He's a, he's a gardener like Adam. But Noah sins, and Noah falls rapidly and things deteriorate down to another low as we get to the, the Tower of Babel, as humanity seeks to proudly exalt itself without God. And again, God judges by dividing humanity with different languages. And at that point, there's a desperation in the story because it feels like no rescue can work. The things that we're trying aren't getting us anywhere from our perspective here. But at that point, something new happens as God calls a family through whom he promises he will bless every family in the earth. And that's next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, we want to come before you and acknowledge the tension of the world that we live in. We live as a people redeemed by grace, yet still with the presence of sin in us. 
we live as a people who, by your cross, are the bride of Christ. Cleansed with your blood. And yet we live in a world that is fallen and broken. And we still express that fallen and brokenness ourselves at times. Lead us to walk wisely, Lord, with eyes on Jesus. As we face temptations, as Satan and our hearts seek to twist your word and to tell us that it is not true and that you are not good, help us, Lord, to be like Jesus and to respond that we know the goodness of our God because we've tasted. When the urges come to hide and to blame in our guilt and our shame, we ask that you would lead us to walk in the freedom of a people who who know our sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us a new creation. We pray that you'd lead us to walk as your new people, as your new creation every day. Amen.